Some of you have uh, been really kind to ask about our kids, as uh, I've mentioned on occasion that they should be expecting their first child this week. At least that's the due date, whatever happens, happens, obviously. Um, but it brings back a lot of memories. Obviously, we're super excited because it's the first grandchild on both sides of the family, and the only uh, struggle is that we're here and not there and how to figure that out. It reminds me a lot over the years, especially when we had kids, is that there was something about having a first child, firstborn child, uh, or as my son would put it lovingly, a new life form enters the house, um, that I think for many of us challenges who we are in our own walk with God. Uh, one of the things that I thought is that I was reasonably giving and sacrificial till we had kids, then I realized how selfish I really was. And I think what happens in terms of family is that there's some people that handle that really well. There's some parents that just go, wow, this is somebody that God has entrusted to us and we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to love and raise this child to come and know Christ and to enter the world. But they are demanding. I mean, they are young and they're infants. They take time, they take energy, they take resources, they take money. I think I looked at a statistic, uh, and obviously there's a lot of nuances and flexibilities, but they were saying that by the time you take a child and raise them all the way through up through high school, I think even before they get to college, it costs, I think the number's now $233,000 to raise a kid. If anything would ever discourage you from that, that would probably be it. Uh, so, but they take our holidays especially when they're really young. They take our personal freedom, our quiet time, our personal Sabbaths, our happiness at times. I remember seeing stats that when people have kids, the marriage happiness goes in the tank for the next 25, 30 years. And then they either rejuvenate it or they go, I don't even know who you are anymore and what's the point? It, it's a, it's a, an incredible demanding thing to be a parent. In fact, if we take the subject we're going to talk about this morning, the idea of selfless spirituality, there's no better place to learn it than in the throes of being a parent. Uh, not only do you have to learn it yourself, but you have to try to teach it to others. I mean, the problem with an infant is that they are horrifically demanding. They don't really care about your schedule. They don't care about sleep times. They don't care about anything that you're doing. If When they want something, they let you know. I mean, in, in some respects, you might call them the epitome of selfishness. I mean, they poop in the middle of the night, they scream and yell, they get sick when it's not convenient. I mean, there's just a constant sense of demand. And, it's, and, you, and if that's not bad enough, as they get older and become elementary school kids, they become worse. <laughs> right? They, they start developing uh, the, these entitlement things. You know, the reason you're here is to make my life happy and to give me whatever I want. So you're buying monstrous amounts of toys for Christmas and birthdays and trying to find experiences. And then they get into sports and the arts and music. And by the time they hit teenagers, somebody's either ready to leave home or get kicked out of home. And so if there's any place that, that challenges our selfishness and teaches us about selfless spirituality, the home is a great incubator to try to learn that. And unfortunately, some learn it really well, some don't. But it really becomes a great picture of understanding closer to what Jesus did for us, even on the cross. I think I've used the, the little phrase several different times, is that I'm sure when God looks down on us, it doesn't matter how old we are, how much theology, how many verses we've memorized, 
All he sees is a whole bunch of four-year-olds strutting around thinking they know stuff and fighting over toys. I mean, we're, we're his kids, but sometimes I can't believe that God doesn't really lose his patience with us because he has to bear us with all the fickleness and all the, the posturing and all the other things that we think are so important. The reason I say that is the text that we're in is Romans chapter 15. We are getting closer to the end. And uh, the text we're dealing with, I think, is a phenomenal text. Let me just read it for you as we begin our journey in here this morning. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. For Christ, and I want to put in here, for Christ himself did not even please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such a harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, one of the things that when we talk about this is there's really three elements that I see in terms of this text. There's actually kind of a funny quote from the Old Testament out of Psalm 69, which is actually an amazing psalm. But it's not like he's quoting Jesus, so it's a little bit of sort of gymnastics you have to play in your mind to figure out how does this connect to Jesus, but we'll get there. But the, but the first thing I want you to sort of recognize here is that selfless spiritual people manifest hope by bearing with the weaknesses of others. Uh, I try to stay off uh, a fair amount off social media. Uh, not because it isn't a great tool, but you start looking at some of the stuff that's on there and it just sounds insane. Uh, people use it as a sort of a platform to speak every mindless thing that comes into their head. Uh, people berate one another, they can get into bullying, they get all kinds of stuff, and yet, at the, the same time, they can be useful tools for people to interact on things. Uh, the problem is, is that there's always a few who seem to want to ruin it for the larger group of people. But one of the things that we discover in terms of this particular text is he's basically going to say, as I borrowed the idea of parenting, is that this is part of the family of God, that we belong not to just a membership club, that we can just do what we want and they're there to, to meet my needs. But this is about family. And there's people, regardless of physical age, that are maybe just starting out on their spiritual journey. So they're like infants. And there's other Christians around, not necessarily by age, that are more like elementary school students. And others that are like teenagers. Others are more like college students. And they're, they, they might dive deeper into the nuances of it. But we're all trying to learn what truth means in terms of my obedience. Nobody's got that figured out. But the joy is we keep exchanging our beliefs for his and our values and, and those kinds of things. And, and we, we keep trying to become like Jesus. But it's, parenting is kind of a great picture of what we have to learn to do in the body of Christ. Because it doesn't matter where you're at, there's always going to be people who have failings and weaknesses that would appear from a human perspective to be greater than yours. And others who would seem from a human perspective to have their act put together more than you. It's not really a good way to compare my life because Paul warned about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but we have to realize that we're all in this journey together and, and that we're constantly working in one direction. 
And and I want to encourage you that the idea that selfless spiritual people manifest hope by bearing with the weaknesses of others. I mean, you can actually be a Christian and have a certain level of spirituality and yet still be very narcissistic and selfish. There's lots of Christians who either because of personality or other things or the way they grew up or what environment they grew up is that they literally would rather avoid people and not care about them because they're intimidated or fearful or scared or they don't want to be bothered or if I start hanging out with someone, that's going to take my time and I just don't want to waste my time talking about trivial, irrelevant stuff that I can't do anything with. Now, I know nobody thinks that way here, but it can happen. And so as we turn through this process and think about the realities of what it means to be selflessly spiritual... I think the first thing we realize is that a person who really is not just spiritual but very selfless about it cares about where other people are living. Not with a condemning, he's already talked about that in chapter 14, not with a condescending attitude, like how come you can't get your act together, or it's not with this judgmental thing, is why can't you figure this out, but it's with this sense that, as you're going to see in the text, That we all need encouragement, we all need to learn about endurance, and so we need to move alongside people. And if I feel like my life experience and things that God has taught me through the wisdom of the Spirit of God can help someone, I can move alongside of them and say, hey, listen, if you're open to it and willing, I'd love to have this conversation. And it doesn't matter how different you are. I'm going to finish the message this morning with a friend of mine who just passed away, and I think he's one of the best pictures of selfless spirituality. But I know that one of the things, and Sarah mentioned it, is one of the great and wondrous dynamics of our churches. We've got people that are in the cradle, and we've got people that are retiring. I mean, we can learn so much from one another. I know that today we're going to end up paying our farewells to Ron and Tammy. Ron's been a great partner in life, even though I've only been here 12 years and known him 12 years. We've gone for long walks and talked about theology Talked about ministry, talked about our own personal spiritual lives. We've, I've, I'm sad he's leaving because don't, we don't get to have those conversations the way we've had them in the past. Tammy's been a rock in their family, and, and they've, you know, they're going to get a chance to connect with more families. So I'm thrilled about that, and then they get the benefit of enjoying them. And as the commercial goes, we're going to have a reception for them after the service, so we'd love for you to hang out and pay, pay, pay your farewells. But, but it's easy in our culture to become cynical and skeptical and jaded that it's just way easier not to be bothered with people. I'll get in and out of life with as least contact with individuals as I possibly can because they don't think the same way as I do. They don't have the same personal convictions as Romans 14 said. And I just think they're knuckleheads because they don't get it. And in our life, we have to keep reminding ourselves that God looks down on us and sees a bunch of four-year-olds who are strutting around and think they know stuff, and he sacrificed his son for all of this sinful humanity when we didn't deserve it. He would have been way in his right and in his privileges and according to his righteousness to just condemn the entire world to hell. And in a sense, that's true, that that all of humanity, if you want to go back and start in Romans 1, that all of humanity rests under the wrath of God because they've suppressed the truth and the reality of God in, in our unrighteousness and in our ungodliness. 
And so God would be within his very right to just annihilate all of us. And yet we've celebrated this morning the, the enormity of his love and his patience and his mercy and his compassion for broken, sinful, rebellious enemies by sacrificing his son. How can we do anything less for one another? Now, you have to use images carefully. You know, part of me says, if we'd learn to treat each other like family, that'd be magnificent. But some people, the way they grew up, it's like, no, don't ever treat other people like you treat family, because that's just not healthy. But, but the point is this, that we have to develop this same kind of attitude that Christ demonstrated to us, that God demonstrated to us, is that we're all part of the family of God and we've all got brokenness and we've all got dysfunction and none of us have arrived. And that's the beauty of it because we can all move alongside each other and say, hey, we're just kids locking arms playing crossover. And we're trying to understand what it means to get out of the darkness, to live in the light of Christ, and to allow the Spirit of God to reshape our minds and our attitudes and our values so that, that my life becomes a reflection of the glory of God. And so the, the, as he walks through this thing, selfless spiritual people manifest hope by bearing with the weaknesses of others. It's a critical responsibility. I mean, literally the text says, those who are strong ought to be obligated, are obligated, are responsible to bear with their weaknesses. Not as a duty, but as an outwork of the work of Christ in us because he bears with us. And it's critical the word to bear up, it means to continue to bear up under unusually trying circumstances and difficulties. I mean, the greatest resource that God has given to us outside of his word and his spirit are people. And yet people, and, and you get into these little sayings, especially if you've been in ministry, people are the reason to be in ministry. They're also the greatest reason why you shouldn't be in ministry. I mean, if there's thousands of reasons that people give you to say, look, why am I bothering with this? Why am I involved in volunteering in children's ministry and youth ministry? And why am I getting involved in this compassion thing? And why am I helping at chain breakers? And why am I helping down in kids? It's because of Christ. It's not because it's convenient. It doesn't mean that it fits in your personal space and time. It doesn't mean it doesn't cost something. But we do it because... The only way, the thing that we really should be learning is this selfless sense of spirituality. Now, I don't know about you, but I think most people, and I'll stereotype this a little bit, have to sort of fight this sense of entitlement. I mean, that's sort of the, the blight on American church. Hey, you're here to serve me, and you need to cater to me, and so if you don't do it the way I want to or do it in the way that I think is helpful, then I'll just go somewhere else. And, and so it becomes a real challenge. But the key responsibility is not how we run programs, it's how we care about one another and bear with the weaknesses of those who aren't in the same place as we are in our walk. The second one is that we engage a critical relationship. This isn't meant to be done at a distance. You can't bear with the weaknesses of others by weighing a green flag from a distance. Howard Hendricks always said, you can impress people from a distance, you can only impact them up close. And, and love, lots of Christians love to be cheerleaders. Yeah, go to it, great. But what God wants is individuals who are willing to go face-to-face -face with people and say, listen, I know we think differently about stuff, but I care about you. 
And so it, it's, it, it's a critical sense of relationship, not just responsibility. I mean, that's the nature of the church, is our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another and our relationship with the Lord. I know it's easy to hang out with people that are like you. I mean, one of the great movements in the church movement right now, and I get both sides of this, is what they call micro-churches. So, like, if Joe wanted to start a golf church... He would, he would go looking for golfers, and they would minister to golf. Why? Because we share this thing in common, and we do things in common. Uh, the question I usually have in the church planning forums is, okay, so if we're talking about diversity and accepting one another and this whole sense of different ethnicities, why are we now creating silos that are actually more my, myopic than any church has ever been? You know, you got like cowboy church and sewing church and golf church. Music church, I, I don't know, I mean, pick whatever you want, but that's kind of where the, some of the trends are going. And, and what we're doing is actually, I want to find people who are just like me, and I want to just hang with them. Because we don't have to do with all this other garbage and issues that other people have who are really weird about certain kinds of things. And so there's this sense of critical relationship that is critical in terms of how we carry this out. And finally... It, they elevate, they have hope because they elevate this critical role. Notice that the text says to please his neighbor, to invest in them for their good, to build them up. I mean, that's why I call this selfless spirituality because, I mean, you can get people walking into a church our size or even bigger. It's harder on the bigger churches. They can walk in and out, not talk to a single person and escape and go, good, didn't have to talk to anyone. I mean, churches act that way sometimes. Well, I want to come in. I want to sit with my friends. We all sit in the same place. That's not wrong in and of itself. Okay, don't. Yeah, this morning, I'm going to get you move and sit beside someone you never knew. No, no we're not doing that. But, but the idea, but notice those little phrases. Please his neighbor. It's for their good, to build them up. It's always about this, the, the idea of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, count others better than yourself. And so the heart of those who are what I would call selfless spiritual people are individuals who are constantly thinking about how do, how do I encourage and invest in others? How do, I, how do I build them up? It's not about, yeah, we all get wounded and broken at times. We need people to speak into our life. But I'm not talking about times where we're in spiritual Medicare or we're on 911 I'm talking about the normal ebb and toe of life. Why am I motivated to come and gather with a, a bunch of believers? Well, some people say, I need them. Spiritually selfless people say, I want to go encourage people. I want, I want to speak some encouragement. I want to give them, I want to pray for somebody. I want, I want to help them move into this next week with the confidence that God's grace and his spirit is with them. But they're also really open to say, listen, i got some struggles in my life. Would you pray for me? They're not, they're not so selfless that they have an arrogance about allowing other people to help them. I mean, that happens all the time. Well, there's some people that will give and give and give and give, but when it comes to helping, no, I don't need anything. I'm good. I'll trust Jesus. Anything going on in your life? Nope, everything's good. Yeah, well, keep lying. And, but So there's this sense of community. There's this interaction where he's talking about that as we build into one another's lives, it becomes this sustaining sense of viable spiritual anchor in our life as we move through the week. we got people that we know have our back and they'll be praying for us. 
That they'll drop something to come and help us in time of need. That this becomes family. But selfless spiritual people are motivated by the hope because of the scriptures. The little quote that he gives in here is actually verbatim uh, out of the Septuagint. It's Psalm 69, verse 9. It simply says this, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. This is a Psalm of David, most quoted Psalm uh, out of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And he says, um, For it is your sake, and he's talking to God, that I have borne reproach, that That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. So he's he's in a situation where even family is hacking on him. That they're ridiculing him. They're, They're reproaching him. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So that's the quote that's taken. He's basically saying is that God... I'm trusting in you. I've got a real passion for you, but there's even family members who are ridiculing me and making fun of me and isolating me and separating themselves from me because they think I'm stupid. Because this is not part of their value system. And the danger for selfless spiritual people is that their passion from Christ can even alienate them from people that ought to be blood family, but they don't want to have anything to do with it. And it's a powerful statement. But a, but a selfless spiritual person knows how to draw hope from the scriptures. Because they love this word because they can read through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they can drink deeply of the experiences of other people who, who've listened. They've been there. They've been through the grind and the crucible of being persecuted for their faith. They've been through the difficulties and the conflicts of life. And we can see by the, 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 the script and the narrative of Scripture how these people struggled through that and learned how to anchor their faith and their trust in a God who at times didn't seem to be present to them. And they struggled with being isolated by their friends and not knowing how to find support and had to struggle through their own doubts and, and their sort of misbeliefs about things. They read through people like Job and they see the gargantuan struggle of initially having people seem to support them but then abandon them. And all of this comes back to the idea that I think selflessly spiritual people love God's word. They they know how to pour, not just the New Testament, actually like the Old Testament, like Paul does. I was having a conversation with someone this morning and we were talking about how a professor in college, some context, was talking about Leviticus. One of my favorite books, frankly, but anyway. And how all of that becomes a reflection of the gospel and what Christ did for us. And if you started understanding the nuances, you'd probably, if you think Romans has been a long series, we go to Leviticus next if you want. Don't worry, don't worry. But he says the richness of the Old Testament is astounding to the people who understand the fabric of of what God is trying to do. Because it just, he literally comes out and says this, that what is written in the scriptures is there for our endurance and our comfort and our encouragement. And so you read back to someone like David, who's kind of one of these icons who had this com- tremendous faith but had some real deep struggles. And now he poured out this raw emotion before God and he struggled with all the things that were going on around him. I mean, listen to the language. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it it became my reproach. 
When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Wow. Now, we may not identify that, but there's times in our life that we feel like we've been beaten to a pulp. And even spiritually, we might be at the end of our rope and not quite know where to turn. And as we draw hope from the scriptures, we need to discover that, that the ultimate fulfillment of that isn't David. And this is why he quotes it. The real picture of that is Christ. When he goes through his suffering and the brutality of the courts, and the affliction of the, the guards and them spitting on him and hitting him with a rod. And you, and you get down to what we put on the slides for communion, you get down to First Peter, and it was, he was reviled, but he didn't turn around and revile in return. When he was abused, he didn't threaten. You know, if it was me, it'd be like, okay, well, you have your time now, I'm coming back later, you're not going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> that, that'd be me, but that's, that wasn't Jesus. He doesn't have to threaten because he's there. he has selflessly surrendered his whole life to carry out the Father's will. No other agenda, no other posturing. He's not here to make himself successful. He's here to carry out the will of the Father. But a, a selfless spiritual person knows the incredible value of this book. And they, they love being in it and they pour their lives into it. They read the stories from Hebrews to Daniel to David to Samuel, because they see people, real-life people, not fictitious stories or fairy tales, but real people who they can identify with because they struggle with the grind of what it really means to be a faithful follower of Christ. And so you show me a person who's in love with God's word and pours over it. I'll show you a person that's most likely a selfless spiritual person because they understand what it means to follow Christ. But selfless spiritual people are models of hope because of God's ongoing work in the body. I want you to notice that the tail end of these verses is really powerful. Now, it's really a prayer, starting in verse 5. Now may the God who's given perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what a great statement. But the key here is, I believe, is the statement he says, all, God and the scripture, it's there to give you hope. It's to give you hope when there doesn't seem to be any hope. It's to give you some encouragement when you feel devastated it's when life circumstances are seem so overwhelming, there is no possible solution to this. I've lost hope. There's a statement I ran across that said this. Someone has said that if you can convince a person there was no hope, he would curse the day that he was born. Hope is an indispensable quality of life. And a selfless spiritual person is a person that has learned to cling to hope, not hope for hope's sake, not hope in my occupation or my finances or my job or my performance, but hope in God. Hope in the living Christ that no matter what happens here, what crumbles here, what falls apart here, can never take away the fact that I know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. That he is the hope, that God is the one who embodies the hope. 
And that when I get out of alignment, I lose hope and I sometimes lose, feel like I lose my spirituality and sometimes selflessness goes to selfishness because I'm losing hope. I think you can always tell when someone starts losing help because they, or hope because they start fighting harder and harder to get it with the things that they think will give them hope. They'll start working harder at jobs. They'll start working harder at certain things. They'll start finding hope in all the wrong places. But when they're without hope, they've got to find it somewhere. And if they don't have the confidence to turn to God and get their hope there, they're going to look for it in all kinds of other places. But God is the embodiment of hope. But it's amazing at times when we get into circumstances or we have to deal with the, the failings and the weirdness of other people that we can lose confidence and hope in who God is. I mean, that's what Matthew 23 and 24 talk about. The, the whole idea is that when lawlessness and life starts to fall apart, most people's love will grow cold. Their love for Christ. Their love for people. Because it's kind of a cutthroat type environment we live in. It's everyone's out to survive and try to get through it on their own. And it just creates not selfless spiritual people, but selfish people. And there's nothing, I believe, that's more corrosive to the body of Christ and the glory of God than when God's people can't bear with the weaknesses of others around them. I mean, that's where it starts, but notice where it finishes. One people, bearing with one another's weaknesses and failing, with one voice, glorifying God in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like a, a grand symphony at the end of this. And it all hinges on, on simply God's people learning to bear with the weaknesses and the failings of one another. It's kind of like, how do you go from there to this? Well, let me run it backwards. There's nothing that I've seen destroy churches faster when people go from being selfless and bearing with the weakness of others to being selfish and condemning and criticizing and judging other people around them. It's torn churches apart. One of the... Uh, we went on vacation this last summer, as I think many of you know, and... Barbara and I were by ourselves for the first week and settling in. It was at the end of July. Her birthday is right at the end of July. And what I arranged is to have the kids fly down and surprise her the day after her birthday. And fortunately, we pulled it off. She didn't know they were coming. So I was running around staying busy, meeting the kids. My wife finally texted me and go like, what are you doing? Like, how come you're not down here with me? And I said, well, do you want to come back to the room or do you want me to come down there? And so she said, well, let's come back, come down here. So I got the kids and they shuttled us all the way around to the pools and I walked in first and I sat on the opposite side of her so she'd look at me and not the entrance where the kids had to come in. And uh, we started talking and of course, rightfully so, she was a little frustrated with me because I was, and she very good about it, but I could tell she was like frustrated, like where you've left me alone here for three hours. I'm going, well, I think I can make it up for you. No, I didn't say that, but... So I'm, I'm, we're chatting about this, trying to sort out our stuff, and all of a sudden I glanced because I saw the kids come in, and she saw it, which I was kind of like, oh, Brad. But anyway, she turned around, looked at them, and then looked back at me, and then got this weird look on her face, like she'd just seen people that shouldn't be there. <laughs> Funny how that works when you're trying to pull a surprise. 
So then her draw dropped, she turned around, and then she just started crying and running down the pool and threw her arms in the kids, you know, gave me a huge hug. I mean, we were all bawling for about 20 minutes. And I kept thinking, wow, wouldn't it be neat, not, maybe not quite that dramatic, but wouldn't it be neat that the gathering of the church every Sunday was kind of like a family reunion? We've all been out in the battle of life and we're trying to share Jesus and live the life we ought to and we ought to come back here and just be giving each other hugs because it's kind of like, hey, you made it through the week. We haven't seen you all week. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing that with one voice we bear with all the idiosyncrasies, we encourage one another, and we come in here and we can sing to the glory of God with one voice. And that's what we're doing. Now, this doesn't fulfill the mission but it can certainly undermine it if we don't have this sense of unity. And so that's the power of what he's talking about. And then the very last statement says, very simply, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also has accepted you to the glory of God. Now, sometimes we get into sort of our own little indispensable God complex where we think God has chosen us because we're really special and we can contribute a lot to his mission. I don't think so. I think God has given us whatever he chooses to give us so that we can contribute the way he wants to so that he can carry out his mission. But the idea here is very simple, is that it says, accept one another. Uh, the idea, and I want to remind you of a couple of theological truths about this, it literally means to take one beside yourself. Even if they have different convictions about life, even if they have some very different thoughts about theology or Bible or those kinds of things, take them, it's literally like taking them in your arm and we're going to walk in this journey together. And I've got things I think you can learn from me and I can learn from you and we can share the wisdom of the Spirit of God in our life and together we can glorify Him. But I do want to remind you that in our culture, love gets kind of messed up because we use two terms together, love and acceptance. Now, God loves the entire world, but he doesn't automatically accept everybody because he has demonstrated his love for us. The only way he accepts a person is when they surrender to him through faith in Jesus where he forgives their sin, removes them from judgment, gives them the righteousness of God, and then, and then gives the, uh, the right to become a child of God. Then he accepts them, they belong to him, and they are now permanently his child. And so you, in the Christian family, he's basically saying on the same basis that God accepted you, now you are to accept other believers in the same way that Christ accepts you, even if we're quirky and we're different and we don't think the same. Because ultimately, if we do that well, it's one of the greatest catalysts to glorifying God. You don't see this statement in every verse, but he says it here a couple of times. The idea is, this is all to the glory of God. Now, some of us are going, well, I thought like the gospel was. Well, that is the gospel, but anyway, we'll get into that later. Seeing people to Christ is amazing. But getting along as family is also part of the equation that we, that with one voice, even though there's massive differences at times in terms of our personal convictions, we can glorify him. I want to tell you a story of a friend of mine. He passed away two weeks ago. Uh, some of you will know him. 
Uh, his name's Raleigh Whitcomb. He was born in Gladstone, Oregon. My wife and I were out there for about 20 years. I was, I would, I was tempted when I heard this. They actually asked me to speak at the, at the service on Friday. And they, uh, I wanted, and I know I've run into Raleigh back out in Oregon because of certain conferences that were there, but I was like to have said I would have known him my whole life, but he came out here to Minnesota to go to Northwest Bible College back in 52. I wasn't even born then, so, you know. Wasn't, wasn't a good argument to make. But I, I'll tell you, if there's anybody that I know that was a selfless spiritual man, it was Raleigh. He died two weeks ago. He was 91 years old, and he was, he was in the pulpit the week before. And every person that got up and talked about him, all they talked about is this man loves people. Now, we would know him here because he was the pastor of Morrison Baptist Church that was over on 35 and off 4th. I think it's 4th and Lindell, somewhere over there. But anyway, the, but, but the idea is he's been a pastor there for, I think, 38 years. It's kind of inner city. A lot of the people that are part of that little fellowship of, and it's gone from 30 to 15 to 22 to 30 again. And all he's done is he says, you know, because of Christ, these people need the gospel. And he had a van and he'd go pick up kids in that neighborhood and there was no job that was beneath him. He didn't sit there and say, I'm not cleaning the floors because that's, that's not my job. He'd do it anyway. He'd have families into his home. He, found, he had, ran into a family sitting in a park that were homeless and he brought them into his home. Or put them up into the church building to look after them. Now, most of us would go, well, wait a minute, there's security and insurance stuff going on. Don't want to do that. And I get it. Two weeks earlier, he did the wedding for his grandson. The gentleman that's sort of partnering with him, Stephen Michaels, I got a chance to meet on Friday. He's been with him over the last year, kind of helping him do the line because Raleigh knows that he couldn't do this forever. And, and Stephen is a fantastic man. I enjoyed getting to know him. But when Raleigh went into the hospital the last time, I think he went in two times over this last month. The one time he was still preparing in the hospital to preach the next Sunday because he was hoping that God would get him out in time to preach. The last time he went in was two weeks ago, and Stephen called him to, in fact, he didn't call him, he said Raleigh kept calling him to see if he was okay. He's going like, what's the matter with you? I'm trying to phone to see if you're okay. About 10 years ago, we took a team over there to help them with Vacation Bible School. I don't know if some of you remember that. A couple of years ago, someone cannibalized and stole their van that he used to pick up kids and so our team here was gracious enough to give them our van and donate it so that they could keep doing that ministry. He had some people get in his face at some point saying, oh, Raleigh, you're getting way too old for this. You need to retire. And he knew that this ministry would collapse if he retired because there's no one else to do it. He and his daughter Renee have just been doing it for years and years and years. I know that some people even said, this church isn't worth it. You ought to just shut this down and give the proceeds to somebody else because it's not viable. It's not going to last. It's one of the few times I ever saw him upset. <laughs> How dare you say that these people aren't worth it? 
I told them at the funeral, I said, you know, I've probably developed too many bad habits, but when I grow up, I'd love to be like Raleigh. That without question, people know that he cared for them with huge sacrifice. They couldn't afford to pay him a full salary. He was bivocational. He found other ways to make a job and earn money. And he wouldn't let it go because this is what Jesus called him to do, is to love people and to share the gospel. I don't know, would you describe yourself as a selfless spiritual person who because of the hope of Jesus are willing to bear with the weaknesses of those around you and to love them and be in the journey? Are you willing to engage those relationships? Are you willing to value the community of believers that we call the family of God? I don't know about you, but I feel like I've got a whole lot to learn when I stand and overview the life of Raleigh Whitcomb and frankly, many people here. You and I both know how easy it is for us to be selfish and entitled. I think Paul called the Romans to be selfless spiritual people just like Jesus so that with one voice we can glorify our Father in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you would continue to reshape our hearts. You know, we have some people that are remarkable people around us that we need to imitate their faith. Their stories are much like the stories of people in the scriptures. We look at their life and we hear their stories of grace and all that you've done in their life and the convictions you put on their heart for the furtherance of the gospel. And Father, rather than feeling condemned because we're not doing the same thing, I believe that your spirit can make us selfless spiritual people who are inspired by their stories, not intimidated by them. That we can journey together and bear with the weaknesses of people around us so that we're not sniping on one another or being condescending or critical, but that with one voice, we can glorify you because of all that Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Help us to gain endurance in our circumstances and encouragement from one another as we're in this journey for for your glory. Father, may every hope and wish expressed in this text and possibly in our hearts this day become the fulfillment of your will, that we might be this burning bright light of the gospel in a very dark world. For this we pray in Christ's name.